Welcome again. Thank you for joining us. If you're a guest here with us today and I haven't had a chance to meet you or introduce myself, my name's Aaron Glover and I'm the pastor here at First Baptist Troop. We're so excited and thankful that you've chosen to worship with us this morning. I want to say a special thank you uh, to those who have traveled from Dallas and even all the way from the, the North Coast, the Northeast Coast. Uh, thank you for having Emily's mom and grandmother Mimi and the treats for joining us from all the way across the United States. So thankful to have you all with us today. So last week we were talking about what greatness looks like in the kingdom of God. And we compared how our ideas of greatness in the world differ from that in the kingdom of God. When we think of greatness, we think of power, position, authority, winning, and being first. But in the kingdom of God, things are, are very different and we looked at two teachings specifically to, to analyze what greatness in the kingdom was. First, we looked at the scene whenever Jesus at the Passover supper got up from the table, took off his robe and washed the feet of the disciples. We remember that. And then when he resumed his place, he taught them about what he had done for them. And he told them that if he, their Lord and their master and their teacher had done this, then they ought to do the same to one another. And then we also remembered another time when Jesus spoke to them about greatness in the kingdom. One time as they were coming to Jerusalem, Jesus predicted his death for a third time. And then James and John and their mother come and make a request of Jesus. And they ask for James and John to be able to sit at his right and left hand when he comes into his glory. Essentially, when Jesus Christ has assumed the throne of heaven, James and John wanted to sit at his right and left hand. It's not a bad place to sit. But then Jesus teaches them, if you want to be great, don't be like the Gentiles who lord their authority and their power over one another. But whoever would be greatest among you, the twelve, must become your servant. And whoever would become the greatest must become the slave of all. And so what Jesus taught about kingdom greatness comes in the form of serving. It comes in the form of service. And specifically, as far as in the life of Christ, greatness in the kingdom is the king becomes servant to give his life for the dead in sin that we may become alive in him. So that's what we looked at is kingdom uh, greatness. And today, this week, we're going to continue our series, Follow Me. This is where we've been for the last few weeks. And spoiler alert, we're going to be here for a few more. I've already got several lined out for us. And what we're doing in this series is we are looking at the, the miracles, the teachings, and the life of Christ through the eyes of the disciples. As if we were alive in those days to witness it for ourselves. We're considering all the things that they would have thought as Jews living in that time, right? We're considering their, their life, their, their family politics, their culture, their education, the expectations. We're looking at this through their eyes as they might have seen it if we were there ourselves. And specifically, we're looking through the eyes of Peter, right? Everybody's favorite disciple, probably. Probably because we can relate to him the most because he's always getting himself into the most trouble. I know how that's how I feel when I look at Peter. So we're going to see uh, some more of this this week as we continue uh, to teach we're going to stay right where we were last week. And this week, we're going to be given a new command. A couple of things I want us to keep in mind 
Okay, this is why the reason I love doing these series is because I kind of get to build on things every week instead of trying to cram everything into one message. We can kind of build from week to week. So if you miss it, you're just completely missing out. I don't know what to tell you. You can go back and watch it, but you need to be here with us on Sunday or you need to be watching live. Anyways, two weeks ago, Jesus was asked by a lawyer. Remember, when Jesus came into town that final time in the final week before his death, the scribes and the Pharisees were constantly after him. They were asking him all these questions. What about giving, uh, paying taxes to Caesar? What about doing this? What about divorce and death? And one of them, a lawyer, asked Jesus, Teacher, what's the greatest command in the law? right? Matthew 22 is where we focused in on that. Mark also teaches this, but Matthew 22 is specifically where we mainly stayed. And Jesus quotes the Old Testament, right? Remember this, back in Deuteronomy chapter 6, Moses gave the law to Israel, right? When Moses gave the law, when he started out, he said, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And to answer the question that this lawyer posed, Jesus quotes this passage, right? He says, this is the first and great commandment. And then he says, and the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. A passage that comes from Leviticus. So Jesus quotes these two things from the Old Testament. And then he says, on these two depend the law and the prophets, okay? So on the great command and the second, which is like it, depend all the law and the prophets. And then we also looked at how Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets. Matthew 5, I believe it's verse 12 or verse 18, when he says that I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And we, as those living on the other side of the cross, we know that Jesus fulfilled the law. We know he fulfilled all righteousness. So today, as we go and we look at these, this new command, we're going to look at it through that exact same lens. And then also, too, when Jesus is saying this, we are now hours before his death. What's going to happen here, after they leave the place they're currently at, they're going to go to the garden and pray, and then Jesus is going to be arrested and sent to a trial, which should have never occurred at nighttime, and then kept awake until he's crucified sent before Pilate and then sent off to be crucified. We are in the final hours in the earthly life of Jesus, and he's about to give his followers a new command. And so because of the timing, because of the situation, I don't think we can underestimate the importance of what Jesus is going to tell us here in the scriptures today. So remember our scene last week. Jesus and his followers have gathered for the Passover. They're in the upper room. When they came into Jerusalem, everybody had the palm branches saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then a couple of days later, Jesus sent Peter and John to go prepare for the supper. They told him to go, he told them to go into town, find the guy carrying the thing of water, and go into his house and ask him for a place to have the meal, the Passover meal. They've gathered for Passover. We have not gotten to the Lord's Supper yet. They've gathered for Passover. And then as the Passover meal was finishing up, that's when Jesus got up from his place, took off his robe. Remember how we identified that as a metaphor for him taking off, becoming one of us to come and serve us. He washes their feet. And remember, Peter resisted. Peter said, Lord, do you wash my feet? He said, no, no, you can't do that. And Jesus said, if I don't wash your feet, then you have no part with me. And then Peter exclaimed, then wash my whole head to toe. 
And then Jesus is going to explain. So after Jesus washes the disciples' feet, he gets back up and resumes his place. Okay? That's where we're going to pick up here today. And again, that is also a metaphor. Jesus Christ, when he got up from his throne in heaven, when he took off his robe, when he assumed our likeness, when he humbled himself to become one of us, to serve us, and having completed the work and the will of his Father here on earth, he was raised by the Holy Spirit and has now resumed his place in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father. So when it, the scripture says that he resumed his place at the table, it's a metaphor for the work of Christ being complete and him resuming the place of honor that he deserves and has earned in heaven. We're going to begin reading in uh, chapter 13. Actually, real quick, another thing that's going to happen before we get there. After he washes their feet, he begins to teach them, right? He resumes his place, and he begins to teach there in verse 12. But then Jesus identifies a betrayer sitting among them. Again, think about this. You've gathered for the Passover. Jesus and the other 11 that are with you, you're all reclining at the table Jesus has just gone through this incredible act of service. And as you're considering what Christ has done and as he's teaching, then Jesus mentions that there's a betrayer sitting amongst you at the table. But he doesn't say who yet. And so in confusion, uh, you might be thinking, oh, is he talking about me? Does he realize all the bad things I've ever done? What's going on? So all the disciples begin to get real confused. And if we're putting ourselves into Peter's shoes, right, Peter looks up, and John is reclining right there next to Jesus, almost leaning into his, his bosom, basically. And he motions, Peter motions. You, you look up to John, and you say, hey, ask him. You're kind of, ask him. Because John's sitting right there. Ask him who it is. So Peter, you motion to John, who's sitting there right next to Jesus. And John asks, and so here's what... Jesus says, he says, he who I give this bread when I dip it. Jesus takes the bread, he dips it, and then he gives it to Judas, right? And what does the scripture say? That then Satan entered into him, into Judas. And Jesus told Judas, what you are going to do, go now, do quickly. I want us to understand before we get into this passage, when Jesus took that bread, remember the claims of Jesus. He said, I am the bread of life. That the bread representing his body, what he was saying when he dipped it, is he was committing himself to death. No one takes his life from him, but he handed it over. Judas, not all the powers in the world could take the life of Christ away from him. He must give it up himself. And that's what that represents whenever he hands that bread. Jesus is handing himself over to betrayal. And then Satan enters into Judas and Judas leaves. So think about this. If you're the disciples, right? If you're sitting there with Jesus, he's just identified a, a betrayer. And then Judas gets up, he hands the morsel of bread to him and then he gets up and leaves. And you're all sitting there just confused, right? What in the world is happening? We were, we were having a great Passover supper. Jesus just washed our feet, and now the treasurer's gone. 
You have to be, what's going on in their minds? They're, they're very confused. So beginning in verse 31 of John 13, John 13, beginning in verse 31, says this. When he, Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you. A new commandment I give to you. That you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Let's read that new commandment again real quick. Verse 34, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. Now let's look at this passage. Let's go back to verses 31 and 32. Real quick as we're reading those, you'll notice the word glorify, glorified, 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 glorified. In the first two verses, if we want to go back to this, when he'd gone out, now the Son of Man's glorified and God's glorified in him. Glorify, glorify, glorify. Obviously, we're dealing with something that is about the glory of God, yes? We get it mentioned that many times, and it might be a little bit confusing. But here's what's just happened. When Judas left, right, when Jesus told him, what you're about to do, go and do quickly. When Jesus prompted him to leave, and then he left, he had already decided to portray Jesus. And then when Jesus prompts him to leave, he does. The final events that will put Jesus on the cross in a matter of hours have just been set into motion. Once Judas leaves, it's after that that Jesus is arrested. Judas goes and tells them where they're going to get him, basically. And he brings them to Jesus to meet them in the garden, which was a place they would frequent. Okay. Set in motion the events leading to the cross. So we think about, what, but what does that have to do with glory? Now he's glorified. So now that Jesus is about to be betrayed, he's glorified. How does that make sense? In the same way that greatness in the kingdom is not greatness in the world, glory in the kingdom is not like glory in the world. When we think about glory in the world, we think about winning, about being first, about being the best, about being the most. But glory in the kingdom is the king become servant who died on a cross for the forgiveness of our sins. So whenever we think about glory in the kingdom, we must realize it's tied to the cross. And when we look at the cross, the cross is what glorifies Christ because it puts Christ on display and it displays the justice of God and the mercy of God. Fully and simultaneously. 
What I mean by that is the justice of God. Sin must be punished. The wrath of God must be poured out for sin. The wage of sin is death. Sin must be punished. That is seen on the cross. But God is also merciful. And as much as he is just, he is merciful. And the mercy of God in the cross is that a substitute was given. A perfect substitute that could satisfy the righteous demands of the law was given. And so when we look to the cross, we see the justice of God and we see the mercy of God, the grace of God perfectly upheld. Neither one overcoming the other, but perfectly upheld in Christ Jesus. And then looking also in verse 33, Jesus tells his disciples, where I'm going, you you can't come. He's already told this to the Jews before in John chapter 8. He tells them, where I'm going, you cannot follow, you can't come. So what does he mean by this? Because he invited them to follow him, right? Jesus told the disciples, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. Follow me. Jesus is not talking about them following him in a, hey, I'm going across town. What Jesus is about to enter is the judgment against sin. And what he is saying to his disciples is that he must go alone. For he alone is the worthy sacrifice to satisfy the righteous requirement of the law. And only he, only his death, only his life, only his blood can satisfy the justice and the mercy of God. But then he also tells them, he says, you can't follow where I'm going right now. But later, you will. We're going to touch on that when we get to uh, next week, actually. We're going to go into some of this. So a few things that I'm about to mention, we're going to dive into next week so we can fully understand this. But for right now, I want us to focus in on that command. We've kind of set up our understanding for the command. Now let's look at it. Again, in 34, the command is to love one another as I have loved you, so you love one another. And I want to compare this to the command we looked at two weeks ago, right? I mentioned it earlier in the beginning. I mentioned how the lawyer asked and Jesus quoted Deuteronomy 6 and then Leviticus 19.18, I want to say. The second one, first is to love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, right? And he said the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself, But let's compare these two. Again, remember, we've considered that Jesus has fulfilled the law. And in this command, in the first command, he was talking about loving your neighbor. A quick question, who is your neighbor? If you don't know who your neighbor is, you can go read a parable called the Good Samaritan, right? When when Jesus is asked, who is my neighbor? We'll get to there another time. To love your neighbor, how? As yourself. Now compare that to the new covenant command. To love one another just as I have loved you. What's the difference between these two commands? In one of them, we are required to love our neighbor as ourself. And we can't even keep that, right? We can't even keep that in our own ability. 
thank God Jesus Christ kept it for us. But then number two, let's look at this one. This one seems even more impossible to love as Christ loved. Do you think it's possible in your own flesh and in your own power to love with the love of God the Son? If you can't love on your own power by yourself as yourself, there's no way you can love with that kind of love on your own. This is something we need to understand about this command. It's impossible for us to do this on our own. But again, look at his wording. Did he say to love one another the way I want you to? Did he say to love one another the way I hope you will? Did he say to love one another the way you ought to? No, he says to love though as I have loved you. What he did, what he fulfilled, and what he actually lived out. So this command is not unlike the one we looked at two weeks ago. We looked at how because Christ, Jesus, loved the Lord with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength, and you live by his righteousness and not your own, and he loved his neighbor as himself, today, whenever we look at this, to love one another as I have loved you, Christ did love us fully and completely. And as we explore that, we'll see how deep this goes. And then the way he empowers that in us is when he gives his spirit, the spirit who lives inside of him, who lived inside of him when he walked this earth, when that spirit is given to us, that love, we can live from that place and love one another as he did. The true power in the life of Christ is his love. First John 4 tells us that God is love. It's not that God is limited by love, but God is love. Everything he does is love. Love is because of who God is. Love is defined by who God is. And that love has been shown to us and given to us in Christ Jesus. We, as believers, are those who have been loved by Christ and freed from sin to love as Christ and empowered by him. His love is the root, and our love is the fruit I want us to look at this real quick. He said to love as I loved, right? As I love. We are going to love from his love. We are going to model after his love. And how do we do that? Not by our own power, but by his spirit. His love is the root, right? Fruit comes from where? The root. And even as we consider this, let's think of the words of Paul in Galatians chapter 5 when he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. What is the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, meekness, self-control, okay? The first fruit of the Spirit that Paul mentions is love. He did not say the fruit of your efforts. He did not say the fruit of your self-righteousness. He did not say the fruit of you. He said the fruit of the Spirit. The Spirit who has been given to you, who is living in you, is producing in you love. 
And so when you have love, that is a result of the Holy Spirit living inside of you. Now, let's define what love is, right? We can talk about love all day. We can talk about loving all day. We can talk about being in his love. But unless we really know what love is or what love looks like, we don't really know. Because we live in a culture right now that has love very misunderstood. Can we just say that? Right? The, the world would say love is love. And I would say to you, no, God is love. But let's look at what love is. Okay? In the New Testament, we have about three words given for love. We have eros, phylos, and agape. Right? Three different words. In, in English, we only have one word. So we lose this translation in English. Okay? But eros is that romantic love. Uh, phylos is the brotherly love, and agape is the divine love. Agape is that unselfish, unending charity that seeks the good of the other over self. Agape never ends, it never fails, it's unceasing. Why? Because it's like God, it's God's love. And to walk in his love is agape. Now, where do we get our best description of what this looks like? Again, Paul coming in to save the day and help us see things more clearly here. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, there's a passage, right? Many of us know this passage because it was quoted at our weddings. Which in the scriptures, this passage has nothing to do with weddings. But it's appropriate because such love should be amongst Christians. And what better representation for us and Christ than a husband and wife? So yes, agape is perfectly suitable for such a relationship and in fact is the basis of marriage but anyways this passage is telling us about agape god's love the love of god how god loves god how the father loves the son how the son loves the father how the father loves the spirit how the spirit loves the father how the spirit loves the son how they all the triune god love one another and how we ought to love as well paul tells us in first corinthians he tells us that love is patient and kind that it doesn't envy or boast it's not arrogant or rude it doesn't insist on its own way it's not irritable or resentful it does not rejoice in wrongdoing but rejoices with the truth it bears all things believes all things and hopes all things it endures all things Love never ends, and it never fails. So if you want to know if you are loving someone, if you want to see what kind of love am I showing this person, is it patient? Is it kind? Are you rejoicing over wrongdoings? Are you insisting on your own way? Are you irritable, resentful? Are you bearing with? Are you Believing and hoping? According to the scripture, this is what agape is like. Now this isn't a full, this is not the entire description of love, but this shows us what love looks like. And this is the kind of love, this is that agape love that Christ Jesus loved us with and has freed us and empowered us to love one another with. So again, Jesus said to love as I have loved you. And how did he love John 13, 3 said, having loved his own who were with him till the end. 
He's the king become servant to give his life as a ransom. He loved them unto death. He washed them. He taught them. He led them. He served them. And he lived the entirety of 1 Corinthians, patient, kind. He lived all of that out. But most importantly, I want you to understand, most importantly, how Christ loved us is found in John chapter 15, verse 9. Most importantly, that as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. How did Christ Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, love you the way the Father loves him? If you wonder, how does God love me as a believer? How does God see me? How does he love me? He loves you as he loves his own son. His perfect and pleasing and holy and righteous son. That's the love that you have received from Christ Jesus. And because of Christ Jesus, that's the love you have entered into and received from the Father. And that's the love you are to give to one another. That's the love you've been freed to give one another. And how do we do this? By abiding in his love. We're going to talk about that next week. We're going to really dive into whenever Jesus promises the Holy Spirit and he talks about abiding in him so he will abide in us and the Holy Spirit, what he will do. That's what we're going to get into next week, how this all works. But for today, suffice it to say that Christ Jesus has loved you the way the Father loved him. You have entered into God's divine love. He has shared that with you and you don't deserve it. You could never deserve it in a million years. You could never earn God's love, but it's poured out freely. Every moment of every day because of who he is and what his son has done for us. And this commandment, It's given to us because of the cross. Again, when that justice, when the wrath against sin was satisfied and a satisfying uh, substitution was given, the wrath of God no longer remains on us. And having entered into the Son, we are loved as the Son, becoming his sons and daughters. We remain in him and are given him to love as him. And as he said, the greatest love is to lay down your life for your friends. And it's exactly what he did for us, right? While we were yet his enemies, Christ died for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. While we were his enemies, he made us his friends because of who he is and his love. And with his spirit in us, We've been empowered to give that love to one another. A love that never runs out. So today, as those who do live on the other side of the cross, right? The disciples didn't understand any of this while Jesus was saying it. I promise you, we can study this for hours and I still hardly understand it. I'll never fully understand the love of God. But I know what it feels like to rejoice and exult in that love. To feel that love. 
the love of the Father to the Son. And by the blood of Jesus, we have been empowered to do the same. And so I bid you to love one another as Christ has loved you by his spirit living in you. Love one another. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you today, God, in thanksgiving. God, we thank you that your son, Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, humbled himself to become one of us. And having lived a life that fully satisfied every righteous requirement of the law and everything told by your prophets, God, he offered himself as a substitution for our sins to take away the wrath and judgment that we rightfully deserved and to give us all his righteousness and holiness that we could live before you not separated by sin, but fully alive in you, with your spirit living inside of us. And God, we thank you for this gift. And Lord, I pray if there's anyone in this room here today who has not yet seen that or understood that or tasted of that, that your spirit would move in them this very day, this very moment, God. Let them see what you have done because of your great love. And let them enter into your forgiveness and into your righteousness and your life by the Spirit. Lord, we love you. We thank you. And we pray all of this in the name of our Lord, our Savior, and our King, Jesus. Amen. We're about to move into our time of invitation.